0: So when we first start talking about marriage, um, I, so if you saw the Facebook post today, kind of getting the word out about what we're going to talk about tonight, I sat, when my computer was charged, this is what ran it down, I sat and looked at my computer for an hour. And I probably rewrote that post ten times, because at first I'm like, okay, we're talking about marriage, just type this up, we'll be done with it. Because I'm thinking just in terms of like me and Anna and like what this relationship looks like and uh, what, a re- what a marriage could look like. But then I start thinking about all the other baggage that makes marriage so complicated. I started thinking about some of your stories, parents splitting, um, the phenomenon of us being out to eat at places and you see a married couple at a table and they're not saying a word to each other. and You're like, what's going on there? Uh, and then I thought about this summer and... What a unique place your whole life has happened inside of Because it's been about the year all of y'all were born That for the first time uh, Countries in Scandinavia and then Western Europe And now America are redefining some of the fundamental definitions of what marriage is And I'm not making a comment about that right now I'm just saying that's what's happening I think this was a hard topic to talk about 50 years ago And it's all the more difficult to talk about now, right? Right? Um, there's three particular ways um, that, or three clusters of thoughts that you and I have when we think about marriage, and I think they they cluster in these three places. The first is we have dreamy views of marriage, right? Uh, maybe your parents' marriage was awesome. Maybe most of the marriages you've seen are great. Um, you're the big Disney fan. You're the chick flick fan, um, You're you're kind of like, that's your vision of what a marriage could be. And so you see marriage, or it's not like some of us are are these people. All of us have this at some level. But in our dreamier thoughts about marriage, we see marriage or or this romantic relationship being the fix-it to all of our problems. So if singleness is something that's like a little bit shaming or difficult for you to deal with, you feel like a little bit less of a person because you don't have a boyfriend, a girlfriend, a husband, a wife, Marriage, we see it as the solution to that problem. It bumps us up on the status ladder a few notches, right? I've arrived. I'm married. I got a ring. Um, We also can see it as the solution, the cure for our loneliness. Um, We say, like, I'm so lonely. I don't have anyone to be with. I just want to be married already. And we think that marriage, these dreamier thoughts of marriage, we think that marriage will cure the problem of loneliness. Talk to a married person if you think that. Loneliness can persist inside of a marriage. Um, Or we can think that uh, marriage is the answer to my uh, struggles with lust or temptation or hooking up or whatever. Finally, I have an outlet permanently. And God tells you you have to have sex with each other. And so, yes, I finally found that place, uh, this sexual outlet. Marriage solves all my problems. And so uh, when you hear this famous verse, and I know it might be new to some of you if you're not familiar with the Bible, but uh, we're going to read this in a second. Paul quotes one of the very first verses out of the Bible here. Uh, that people who, in our dreamier moments about marriage, we hear what this, we hear, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. We hear that and what jumps off the page is, united, one, get to get out of mom and dad's house. Life starts over with my soulmate. And so we, we kind of, we don't feel complete unless we're married right? That's the dreamier thoughts we have. We also also at the same time sometimes have dreadful thoughts about marriage, right? You could nod. Uh, the more you get to know what marriage is like, maybe you've seen some harder marriages. Your parents don't have an ideal marriage. Um, or you've just heard enough about this where you're kind of like, okay, I'm seeing through the cracks here. This is, this is broken just like all the other relationships are. Um, and you can see marriage as this overwhelming, intimidating thing. Um, as, and, and, and you know your own baggage from your own relationships, and you're like, how could I ever get through that given what my past relationships have looked like? My own insecurities, my own neediness, my own whatever, my own shame. How could marriage ever be a good thing for me? And so they're dreadful thoughts. Or like me, I was 30 years old when I got married. I had a long time to get set on my ways. And so my dreadful thoughts about marriage were more like it's suffocating Like, I was a bachelor, and I loved being a bachelor. I got to do whatever I wanted, when I wanted, how I wanted, where I wanted, with whom I wanted. And I never had to call anybody to to say, hey, I'm going to go do this, or what are we doing tonight? I just did it. And that was appealing to me, and my heart had gotten very attached to that. And so the idea of committing to someone forever and yielding and giving up that freedom and spontaneity uh, terrified me. And the longer uh, maybe marriage um, is out on the horizon for you, you might uh, find that as well. And so we read Genesis two twenty-four, and what we see leaping off the page is, for this reason, a man will leave his father and his mother and be united to his wife and become one flesh. And we're like, one? What happened to my individuality? What, about, what happened to me being me? You do you and I'll do me. Uh, What happened to freedom and spontaneity and and this leaving? It's not just you leave mom and dad. You leave life as you knew it when you get married. You leave your family's culture. You leave what's familiar. You leave life as you've known it in order to cleave or cling to this new marriage, this new relationship. And, And your mind highlights that stuff and you freak out. You're like, I can't see myself doing that. And then the third one is uh, maybe a a newer one. Maybe it's not so new. And I'm I'm trying to go with these here, y'all. Work with me. Redefining. So so we have some redefining thoughts about marriage, too. Uh, Bear with me on this. Hear me out. Um, I mentioned a second ago, uh, literally, I mean, this is like the highest the line chart ever gets in terms of unprecedented stuff happening with how we as a culture and society think about marriage. Uh, Unless you lived in a cave this summer, you knew that the Supreme Court uh, said that there's a constitutional right for uh, two men or two women to marry each other, and this is not just a political issue. Because more and more of you, this is hitting home in a really personal, hard, complicated way. Some of your close friends, your cousins, brothers, sisters, moms, and dads um, are marrying partners or talking about that, and you're left with like the... What just happened? I felt like last year everything was clear. Marriage seemed pretty clear last year, but now, like, what do we do? What is marriage anyway? How important is, our, is these kind of like traditional views, or can we kind of like adapt those? And so we get at a place of confusion, like just intellectual confusion, much less emotional confusion. So these are the three place, these are the three clusters of thoughts that tend to come into our mind, dreamy thoughts, dreadful thoughts, and defining thoughts, About marriage and here's what I'm going to ask you The same question I got asked yesterday when I was in jury duty Two hours I had prosecutors and attorneys asking us A room full about this size Can you set aside your pre-existing prejudices and biases And listen to the evidence as it's presented There's a couple people who said they couldn't do that They said if you get arrested by the cops I believe you're guilty They said, if you refuse to testify at your own trial, I believe you're guilty. And so the judge said, thanks for your time. Have a nice day. So my question to you is, can we, we're about to pray to do this, but can you, will you set aside the biases, the partiality, the prejudices that you accidentally brought into the room with you? And I did too. These dreadful biases, these dreamy biases, these redefining biases, can you set those aside to hear God Help us reimagine what marriage is. That's the question. Whether you can or not, why don't you stand up and uh, we'll hear from him. And then uh, we'll kind of quickly go through this. Um, The good news about (laughs) me writing this, literally while we were singing, is it's shorter. (laughs) This is Ephesians 5. This is kind of the classic place the Bible talks about uh, marriage. Paul says this in the context of every other kind of relationship calling us how showing us how the gospel changes our relationships. He says this wives submit yourselves to your own husbands as you submit yourself to the Lord for the husband is the head of the wife just as Christ is the head of the church his body of which he is the savior now as the church submits to Christ so also wives you should submit to your husbands in everything. Husbands, you buckle up. Love your wives. How? As Christ loved the church, his wife, and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through his word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain, wrinkle, or any blemish, but instead holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands, I'm not done with you. You ought to love your wives as your own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, nobody ever hated their own body, but they feed it. They care for it. Just as Christ feeds and cares for his bride, the church. For we are members of his body. Then he quotes Genesis. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. And the two will become one flesh. This, what he just quoted, this is a profound mystery. Literally in Greek, he says a mega mystery. This is a profound mystery. But what I just quoted from Genesis, it's talking about Christ and his church. Each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Let's pray. Jesus, we hear a little bit in there. Well, some some things sound very new to us. Perhaps marriage is first about you and then about us. Um, But in this passage, we also see the way you love us because we, those who are united to you by faith, those who follow you are your bride. I pray that tonight in the next few minutes, you would help us see two things, how the gospel changes marriage and also how you love us as your church. Let us see too. And would you do what only you can do? Push aside the biases that blind us, that make us hold with white knuckles to our own opinions. Would we yield to your opinion and to what you say is true? Do this for your sake and for your glory. Amen. Thanks, and you can take a seat. If you're a note taker, write this down because then you'll be able to follow with me. But this is kind of bullet in bullet point fashion. I'm going to talk about five or six things marriage will, marriage does to you. Number one, marriage points you, it demotes you, it kills you, it commits you, it transforms you, and it presents you. It points, demotes, kills, commits, transforms or changes, and presents. Have a nice night. Aren't you encouraged? You're like, geez, I'm glad I came tonight. So let's go back to the things I said earlier. The The dreamy thoughts, the dreadful thoughts, and the defining thoughts, what they all have in common is that they have all turned marriage upside down on its head, the way it was designed to be. The dreamy thoughts make marriage about me first, me second, my spouse third, maybe kids or neighbors fourth, and God somewhere distantly down the line. So do the dreadful thoughts. So do the redefining thoughts. And attitudes and feelings. Um, They've turned marriage into me marriages. Some of us run away from marriage for me reasons. Some of us run to marriage for me reasons. Uh, And all of us inside of marriage, if you are married, all of us inside of our marriage struggle every day to repent of turning marriage into all about me. Now, here's the thing. Perhaps this passage talks way more about Jesus than you thought or you it Because you thought, I thought Paul's talking about marriage. Why is he talking about the church? Why is he talking about Jesus all the time now? Um, marriage is by design. God made it. We'll talk about this in just a second. But he made it primarily to point to Jesus and his church. And only secondarily is it about two people loving each other. Uh, and then thirdly, is it about me receiving anything? So God my spouse, me, instead of me, 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 my spouse, me, God. Dreamy thoughts, dreadful thoughts, redefining thoughts about marriage, even the stuff this summer are all making marriage about me. And that's why ours is a unique day. And you're thinking about marriage at a very unique time because, as I, as I mentioned earlier, about half, it seems, about half of our society desperately wants marriage. We're broadening the boundaries of who can get married. We're, we're lessening the requirements of what it takes to get married. So it seems like half of us are desperately chasing marriage, but the other half are desperately running out of it, divorcing, saying, I know I said I will, but I won't for whatever happened. Both... Trends are happening simultaneous. We want marriage more than we ever have before, and more people want marriage than they ever have before. And at the same time, it seems less people want marriage. I think more people want marriage, partly, partly, for this me stuff, self-fulfillment instead of self-denial. And I think more people are leaving marriage for me reasons. I'm not getting that self-fulfillment. This person's not satisfying me, making me happy And so I run towards it because of me, and I run away from it because of me. And that's ironic, right? To be alive at a time when both things are happening in dynamite ways right before our eyes. This is the shift that's happened, and I don't think it's unique to our age. It's not like, oh, everything's going to hell in a handbasket. I think this has always happened, apart from the Spirit freeing you and helping you die to yourself. We will turn everything into self-fulfillment instead of self-denial, which is a problem if marriage in its essence, is about self-denial, and you turn it into self-fulfillment, it's not going to work. It's going to produce a lot of heartache for you and for anybody else in it with you. And so either way, whether it's dreadful, whether it's dreamy, whether it's defining, we're at a point where we're always saying, it's not about you, it's about me. And so if it's about me, I'm going to run. If it's about me, I'm going to run towards it. The first thing I said marriage does is it points us away from self and it points us towards this greater reality of Jesus and the church. That's a little abstract. Here's what I mean. Um, I love camping. I used to do a lot more of it than I do now. But in college, we would do all these road trips to we would go down to the Suwannee River and paddle down that for a week. Or we'd go to the Outer Banks of North Carolina or we'd go to some huge thing up in South Carolina, Big Canyon. And invariably, whenever we would go on these road trips, we would start seeing signs about 100 miles away, like 100 miles ahead. Out here, you'd say 100 miles ahead, Grand Canyon. Then as you get closer, Grand Canyon, next right. Then as you get a little bit closer, Grand Canyon National Park, three miles ahead. It is imperative to your joy and your satisfaction that you can tell signposts apart from destinations, right? Right? What if you what if you'd never seen a picture of the Grand Canyon you just heard about it and you mistook the sign for the substance the thing that points to for the thing pointed to and so you see that first brown national park sign grand canyon next right you're like yes we're here that was such a long trip and you pull over your car and you pull out your tent and you set it up at the base of those those posts and you say we're here what's going to happen You're going to look silly to other people. The second thing that's going to happen is you're going to be really disappointed because you're going to be like, is this it? (laughs) Is this like, this is it? This is the Grand Canyon. I thought I was expecting more. Uh, This passage, if it says anything, it says marriage is a signpost. It is a sign that points to a greater, truer, bigger, eternal reality. Does that make sense? If we mistake the sign for the thing the sign points to, we also will suffer great disappointment and we'll look silly while we do it. If you don't know that marriage is a sign that points to something better beyond itself. Um, so here's the question: Which came first: Jesus' relationship with his people, or men and women getting hitched and married? Here's what I mean. There's a lot of times in the Bible where Jesus is just like, he's in a room like this and he's talking to people and he's like, how do I explain this? Bam. Uh, my relationship with you is like that window. Here's how. And uh, he's using teaching tools to explain something to you. Is that what's happening with marriage? Is God just saying, is God kind of like catching up to us and he's like, oh, ooh, this thing y'all do, this is really cool. Like a guy gets with a girl. That's awesome. That's awesome. You know, my relationship's kind of like that. Or did God's relationship with his people predate the invention of marriage? Predate Genesis 2, 4. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Uh, If you have a paper Bible or even a Bible on your phone and you flip back to uh, Ephesians chapter 1, this is the same Paul writing the same letter And he starts that letter with the answer to the question. He says, this is how God redeemed us. If you want to know how God saves people, this is a peek into how he does it. Paul says, verse 4, chapter 1, for God chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ. Why? in accordance with his pleasure. And he says it again a few, a few verses later in 6 or 7, that God chose his people in Jesus before the foundations of the world, meaning this. God knew his bride, he knew his people, and he loved his people before he ever made his people or made light or made anything. I didn't say that he saved his people before the foundations of time. He says he chose his people. Jesus knows his bride. She's not a male a bride. She's not an eHarmony profile. She is a person he knows. Not because he predicted what she would do one day, but because he pursued her and he chose her. The Bible looks at how people get saved and it says, God, before the foundation of time, chose us in Christ to be blameless, beautiful, and holy in his sight. Here's the point for tonight, though. Jesus' relationship with his church was first. And so when God invented romance, when God invented the way a man and a woman join each other in marriage forever and make promises to each other, he did it specifically to show what Jesus' relationship with his people is like. So marriage isn't a helpful little metaphor that God uses to help you understand that. Marriage is a sign that points you to the real deal. This is why marriage is temporary. No marriage will last. Jesus says in the new heavens and the new earth, marriage will not exist. Why? Because marriage was a sign. It wasn't the substance. If you get married and confuse that, you're going to continually be demanding that your wife or your husband be the Grand Canyon when all they are is a signpost. And that's going to produce a lot of confusion and a lot of heartache for both of you. Does that make sense? Marriage is a sign that points to a greater and eternal substance that is sweeter to us. The second thing is kind of connected. It's this, that marriage demotes you. Did you notice how Paul starts talking about marriage? He starts not by saying, wives, here's what you get from your husbands. Like, this isn't a contract, like your phone bill or your phone contract or whatever. It's like, here's what you get from AT&T and here's what we get from you, your money. Much more of it than you ever expected to give us. And we give you lousy service. But this is different. This is not, wives, here's what your husbands, here's what you get from your husbands. Husbands, here's what you get or can demand or expect from your wives. He reverses it and he says the opposite. Wives. Here's what you get to give to your husbands. Husbands, here's what you get to give to your wives. Again, keep in mind that marriage is forming us, it's teaching us, it's pointing us to Jesus' ways with his church. But Paul says, Paul starts by talking about how marriage, in a sense, demotes us. It ta- it, it, you know how I said we have made marriage about me, 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 spouse, me, me, God? God. Marriage flips all that back over. It forces you to. It forces you uh, to put the interests of your spouse ahead of your own. Or else it's just like this. And you split soon after. Marriage forces you. It, It sends two people who are clamoring to the top, the front of the line. It sends them both to the back of the line. And you just trade spots about who's serving who at the moment. That's God's dream and vision for marriage. Is that this demotion would actually be a freeing and a good thing that it sends us not to the front of the line demanding stuff from our spouse, but it sends us to the back of the line freely giving to our spouse. The second thing I said marriage does is it kills you. Hey, things get better because of this. And, and ladies, I told you I would give you, I would, uh, I would throw you a bone on verse 22, or God does, Paul does too. Here is why. Uh, marriage kills a husband and marriage kills a wife. It requires your life. It really does. Not just theologically, but practically too. Uh, How do we see this? Uh, In verse 22, Paul says, Women, this is to be your posture in a marriage. Your lifestyle in a marriage is a lifestyle of continually submitting yourself to your husband just the same way you submit yourself and yield yourself to the Lord. Hang with me. And he says, why? For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body. And as the church submits to Christ, so ladies and wives, I should say wives, this is specific to marriage, not general, um, beyond anything beyond marriage, but wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Ladies, at this point, at least you know this. Marriage will cost you your life. In service to another, because it's as clear, it's as plain as day that he calls women or wives to submit themselves and yield themselves to your husbands. That's obvious. But men, uh, we like to quote that passage. But I think uh, Paul spends more words explaining what our posture in a marriage is. Husbands, love your wives. So far we're like, great, I can love her. We'll have fun together, whatever, as long as she yields to me, that's great. As Christ loves the church. You know what Christ did for the church. Christ's love for his bride cost him his life. That's not a metaphor. He yielded his life. He submitted himself to the will of the Father. And it cost him everything. That's what Sean read about in Philippians 2. He did not count equality with God something to cling to. He He allowed himself to be demoted even to the form of a servant laying his life down so that you might come alive. Husbands, God's dream for your marriage is that you will die in submission to God for the sake of your wife. Here's the thing. Kathy Keller in her marriage book um, says this. She says, in a Christian marriage, both husband and wife are handed the role of Jesus. Imagine a play. You're both husband and wife. You're both... Handed a script. And it says on the top. Your part is Jesus Christ. It's just in different ways. Right? Women submitting to their husbands. Because just as Christ is the head. And the leader of the church. Women submit to your husbands as head and leader. And men. You also play the Christ part. Laying down your life in sacrifice. Presenting your wife better than you found her. Which means pouring out your life. To lift her up. Pouring out all of who you are and all of who you have that she might be more beautiful, more mature, wiser, better. You're both handed the script of Jesus and asked to outperform each other every day, to outact each other every day inside of that marriage. Um, This realization alone is helpful. I know it's startling. This is so countercultural today, but do you know how countercultural it was to Paul's day? This isn't patriarchalism. This isn't male chauvinism. This isn't Paul kind of just saying what any first century Jew who's been converted to Christian would say. Paul is saying something deeply subversive. It cut against the grain of the culture that day. That men would dare be called to give anything for their wives. Archaeologists have dug up the divorce statutes from first century Palestine. Do you know what a man could leave his wife for? Anything. Do you know what a woman could leave her husband for? Nothing except for infidelity. Uh, If a woman left her husband for any other reason, her next stop was to be stoned. No penalties for husbands who leave or abandon or ditch their wives or don't provide for them. And Paul here is saying, men, buckle up. Repent of the ways you treat women that have much more to do with the culture than the gospel. Love your wives as Christ loved the church. Women, submit to your husband. This thing about submission, um, talk to Anna afterwards. What, talk to her about what it's like to live this in three years of marriage of submitting to a husband. I'm speaking on your behalf. You can throw something at me if I'm wrong here. But in three years of marriage, I can count one time that uh, we've had a conversation where it's kind of ended at the point of one of us has to yield. Um, This is a blessing that one person is called to yield because without this, you're stuck with your chemistry study group where nobody will step up and make a decision, Or when you want to say, you ask your friends, where are we going to eat tonight? And nobody makes a decision. And you get frustrated and you no longer want to eat with said friends. Because you're like, someone decide. Those are funny examples, but it's deeper than that. Because when Anna and I, when I graduated seminary and we're living in Philadelphia. And we're about to hit a point where we don't have money anymore. Or a job anymore. And one of us had to make a decision that the rest of our life would hang on. Like, where do we move? What job do we take? Someone had to own the risk of that. Someone had to own the decision and be responsible for it if it all fell apart. Someone had to say, if all of our estimations are wrong and we're poor and we lose our jobs, I take responsibility for this decision and I will protect you no matter what happens. Is it safe to say you didn't want that weight of owning the failure of our relationship and our future? If it didn't work out, is it safe to say that was a blessing to you? And at the time we had to go we had, we had two houses. Our first house was falling through. The, the contract last summer fell through the day before we closed. Anna was about as pregnant as she is now, and we were looking for another house. And we were in my living room. and Anna is crying. And we've been in this process for three months, and nothing has worked out. And this house that's falling through was going to cost us an additional $10,000, we found out. And we're like, do we do that or not? And Anna was at a place of, I'm sick of this process. I was too. She's like, I'm pregnant. I don't want to be without a house. We're about to be without a house. And I went to bed that night, and I knew in my mind... This is not safe for our family. We don't have that money. If we spend that money, I am putting both of us in a really dangerous place. I don't know how this is going to work out, but I get the sense this is not a wise decision. I asked Anna for permission to make that decision. She said, you make the decision, but this is what I think. It's the only time in our marriage I think I've ever reached a different conclusion than she did. And I didn't sleep at all that night Because guess who's up at night bearing the burden of that decision and the potential failure? It wasn't Anna. It was me. And until about a week or two later when that house completely fell through and we found the house that we're in now, um, that I felt vindicated. But I had to own the possibility that that wouldn't work out and I'm going to have egg on my face and I'm going to put her in a worse position. Guys and girls, when when God says, wives, submit to your husband, he's not talking about, woman, bring me dinner. He's not saying, you do all the diapers, you do the dishes. He's saying, men, step up and own the fragility of the future and lead your wives. You bear the responsibility. You bear the scary stuff so that she doesn't have to. That's what he means, not a chauvinistic submission. Women, it is nothing is more empowering than when a man or a husband knows that his wife has his back and trusts his leadership. And nothing is more demoralizing and discouraging when a husband thinks his wife doesn't respect him. I promise you that. That is what will take the wind out of your sails like that when you start suspecting your wife no longer respects you. Paul finishes his talk about husbands and wives. Wives, respect your husbands. If you can't respect them, find a way to respect them. Talk to them. Here's the the deal and we'll push on. How countercultural is this? Because we've just been talking about a man who literally lays his life down for his wife. A man who should lose sleep over this stuff. And a woman who lays down her life for her husband and sometimes loses sleep working, praying, praying. Living by faith to be able to respect her husband and support him. This is so countercultural. The cultural view of marriage is it's all about me. It's two ticks looking for a dog, if you've heard that expression. Two hungry, thirsty ticks wanting a fix, and there's no dog around. And so they basically try to attack each other all the time, looking down their noses at each other. Why aren't you making me happier? Why aren't you performing? You don't want them to play the Jesus role. You want them to play kind of the apocalyptic Messiah role of like, you're supposed to make life fun for me. Why are you failing? That's the alternative to what Paul is talking about here. Two people refusing to die, insisting the other dies for them. Those are your options. God, by his grace, opens up the possibility of two people dying to themselves so that they can live for the other. It's a daily death to the me marriage, the repentance. And this is, Jesus is a picture of it that Sean read about. Here's where we can kind of get to some really practical ground. Uh, This should be scaring you a little bit or unsettling you, especially if it's new to you. I know this might not sound very sexy or desirable. Here's the deal. Um, This is so intimidating and so overwhelming, the thought of this, that we would run away Um, if it weren't for a couple of things. There's a a guy named Mike Mason who wrote a book called The Mystery of Marriage, and he said love hoodwinks us into making a decision we would never make if our eyes were alert. He said none of us would ever read what I just said to you and all the implications that flow out of it and still say I will at the altar unless love had kind of greased the tracks Uh, because the price tag would have given a sticker shock and we wouldn't have done it. And that's a, that's a mercy of God. I don't mean that in a cynical way. It's not manipulative. I mean that in a, in a gracious way. God knows this is hard. He provides so many resources to help, not just into these relationships, into marriage. Romance, love, affection, uh, being with each other in the future, having a partner, having a friend. Uh, but the other thing is this. God gives us vows to leash us to our better selves. There's a story. This is a true story. And if you were at Summer Conference two years ago and heard John Stone give all those messages, uh, you'll believe this. John Stone is like the number two guy in in charge of RUF all around the nation. And he's crazy. Stuff happens to him you wouldn't believe. And it's all true. John Stone is a pastor like me. He is officiating a wedding uh, of a pastor's daughter, a girl he knew really well. He knew her dad. So the room is full of like ministers. And all the groomsmen are ministers. And John is going through the service, and uh, he's kind of like he's doing the who presents this woman to take this man. He's doing the dearly beloved we gather here today. He does the message. They st- exchange rings, and he says, it's my pleasure to present to you Mr. and Mrs. Brent and Katie Webster. And instead of clapping and smiles, the bride looks at him and says, John, you didn't do the vows. And he says, come again? He said, you, the vows, you didn't do the vows. And he start, he's miked up like me, so he's like, I didn't do the vows. <laughs> so he has to like unmarry them real quick. They're not Mr. and Mrs. Uh, Brent Webster. Uh, they're individuals again. And uh, he's like, he starts flipping through his little book, and he's like, the vows, the vows. I don't have the vows. What had happened is he, you do so many weddings, you begin to copy and paste chunks of stuff to, to build your homily. And he forgot to cut and paste the vows. And in the heat of the moment, he blanked. And so all these groomsmen are picking up their phones like Googling wedding vows because all of them have blanked too. Nobody can think of what the words are for better, for worse, rich or poor, whatever. They all blank. And so John can't wait for like the internet to speed up and these guys to get the vows. And so he just starts ad-libbing. And uh, to this day, nobody really knows whether Brent and Katie are truly married or not. I think there's some massive loopholes in their agreement. Uh, but here's the point, Katie and her mom were, were upset with John and he had to do a lot of apologizing for this reason, without vows, marriage isn't marriage. Without vows, marriage is just living together. Marriage is just a romantic relationship. And here's why, vows are what mar- make marriage, uh, marriage um, because they chain you to your better self. They, they chain you to the kind of husband and the kind of wife that we just talked about. If those vows weren't there, you would run. Because when you do get married, there will come days where you feel like a dog on a walk and you start pulling at that leash and you feel the collar. And your, your vows constrain you. They pull you back to your master. They pull you back to love. When you remember, I said, I will, not I do. Vows are future tense, like I just alluded to. Vows are not, when you get married, you don't go to an altar and say, I feel this about you and I feel that about you, unless you're the weirdo who writes your own vows. Everyone's like, oh gosh, where's this going? Wedding vows are future tense, I will. It's like making an appointment with future you, that in 10 years, uh, when my wife is in this situation, when my husband is in that situation, I don't know what life's gonna be like, but I know where I'll be right with you. Vows are, I will love you. I will cherish you. I will not forsake you. Not, I do love you. Not, I feel awesome about you. It's future tense. You're making a decision. You're proclaiming a promise in the dark. When I do weddings, I point this out. I tell people, we stop. We do the vows and I say, hold on a second. Do you realize the outrageous things you just said? You just said, No matter what happens financially, no matter what happens physically, no matter what happens emotionally or spiritually or vocationally or relationally or geographically, no matter what happens, I promise to do this and this and this and this and this and this and this. That is so counterintuitive. Usually we want to know the future before we commit. Tell me what I need to do before I say yes or no. And a wedding's the reverse. You say yes or no before you know anything. You have to make promises in the dark for that relationship to be predictable and for you to run towards your spouse, not away from them when life does fall apart. And so they say for richer, for poorer, when you you don't have money for the kind of life you wanted or the kind of marriage you wanted, for better or for worse, when your wife or your husband goes through a 10-year season of depression and they're just not fun to be around, you will love them. When your wife or husband gets a hard heart and doesn't want to go to church anymore, you will love them. In sickness and in health, when your wife at 35, like some friends of ours, gets inoperable cancer and dies after three months in hospice, you will not leave her. You will take care of her. She will know that she will die with her husband there. This is what we mean. And I would add this one in like and in dislike, not just rich or poor, better, or worse, health and sick, but in like and in dislike. Look, don't you know this by now in your life? Love is like fog in the morning. It's there and then it's not there. Uh, you will fall out of like with whoever you marry. Like is seasonal. Love is something more mature and deeper than that. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, it is marriage that sustains our love, not love that sustains our marriages. If you get that wrong, you will ask love, which is this weak, fragile little thing, to hold the weight of marriage, which is like the Titanic, and it will break it. But if you let marriage sustain love, then that has the Titanic holding a little bird's nest, and it is more than capable to do that. Here's what this means. The idea of falling out of love is BS, And I know this has hurt you because you've heard mom or dad say it or brother or sister or other people that it affected you. But when people say, we just don't love each other anymore, they are paying the price for a marriage where love was holding up everything. They were looking for love to sustain their marriage. And when the love went away, the marriage went away. There is a way that marriage gives space and oxygen and time and durability for a husband and a wife to work through their problems together. We need to push on. Marriage transforms you. Jesus says that, or Paul says this in the passage down uh, below, verse 26. Marriage changes you. It makes you holy. It cleanses uh, you just as Jesus cleanses his bride. Here's a few implications. If marriage changes the person you're marrying, how do you choose who to marry? Because it means you're going to marry a stranger. Or the person you marry anew is going to change in five or ten years, and you're going to have to re-get to know them. And re fall in love with them. Uh, So, who should you marry? Uh, You should look at trajectories, not how the person is today. You should look at how they've been moving, where they're going, not where they are now. What patterns are in this person's life that are attractive, that are promising? Is the trajectory going this way towards the Lord, towards community with other people, or is it this? Or worse, is it this? You look at trajectories and patterns, you look at character. Not how pretty they are today or how cute he is today, uh, but you look at where they're going. You look at who they're p- becoming. You try to predict their future self. Who is God making this person? And that's who you fall in love with, and that's who you marry. Mer- marriage practically changes you. It also changes how we think about compatibility. The ideas of, am I going to marry the wrong person? Uh, you're both changing. And so you are continually having to learn to love your wife or your husband all the time, right? Because you're both always changing. And the last thing that changes um, is how long these feelings of euphoria, these happily ever after feelings last. C.S. Lewis in his book says, um, a thrill is a great thing, but who can sustain a thrill beyond that initial little period? Like you were super excited maybe when you got to campus again after a long summer, Uh, but how many of you are still that thrilled? How many of you would have the emotional energy to be that excited and happy all the time? How can a marriage be in a continual perpetual state of emotionally draining excitement and thrilledness? C.S. Lewis says that stuff wears off and gives gives space for a better and more durable kind of thrill and an interest that, uh, that comes to people later. The last thing I wanted to talk about is this, and I'll end it with a story instead of uh, anything else. Marriage presents you better than it found you. I talk to y'all a lot about the movie The King's Speech, and this is not the same illustration. The King's Speech is about a speech therapist helping King George VI to speak because he had a stutter and he couldn't speak. True story. Um, Lionel Logue spent months and months and months of just heart-wrenching, exhausting work with King George, and he was not fun to be around. Um, But every day they would work on their speech therapy. He would help him get over those little stutters, help him get unstuck so that he could say a sentence and lead a country. And the pinnacle of the movie is when King George gives the speech on the BBC. You can download it tonight. It's on YouTube, declaring that England is at war with Germany. And after that speech, and you can watch this video on YouTube, King George walks to the balcony uh, at Buckingham Palace and there are tens of thousands of people assembled to hear this speech and King George walks out on the balcony and all the glory is his. And Lionel Logue is about 50 feet back. The camera picks up the back of his head as he looks at King George. King George alone is in the spotlight. And everybody knows his struggle with his stutter and everybody is rejoicing that he got over it and that he just delivered the speech that he did and rallied a nation. And Lionel Logan's in the shadows in the back. And who is responsible for all of his change? Not King George, but his speech therapist. Paul says Jesus will present his body, his bride, the church, to himself, holy, without blemish, cleansed. He doesn't love us because we're lovely, but his love makes us lovely. And in a sense, he stands in the shadows as his bride is presented to him. And she is mesmerizing. Husbands and wives are to be married in such a way that when the marriage is ending, when you die, um, you present your wife or your husband the way Lionel Logue presented King George. You remaining in the shadows while this beautiful, radiant bride walks to the balcony and everybody is jaw-dropped because of how mature and wise and gentle she is, or vice versa. That is God's dream for marriage, and it's a hell of a lot better than the me marriages, the dreadful ideas, the dreamy ideas, and the redefining ideas that will drain you and point nowhere but your own emptiness. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are this kind of husband to us, your church, Only by your Holy Spirit could we ever hope, ever dare to hope that this kind of a marriage could ever start to prop up in our own lives, that we could love this way. We're simply incapable of it apart from you. And so we pray tonight that you would help us where we are weak, that you will teach us how to love, and that you will prepare, my friends, most of whom are not married or even close to getting married, help them to work now to be people who are givers of self. People who get to know married people who can be disabused of these fantasies and learn what real day-to-day marriage is like and how dependent we are on your grace. We ask this in your name. Amen.